Matthew chapter 28 in your Bibles, if you would please. Matthew chapter 28. It is Thursday, all right. One more night and this thing will be over, will it not? And uh, so Matthew chapter 28. Tomorrow night is the blue light special. So pastor's curiosity is all up about that. Matthew chapter 28, if you would please. Matthew chapter 28. It's good to have each of you here with us tonight. I appreciate each of you coming. You know, the longer you go in a week of meetings, the harder it is for folks to get here. And then the harder it is for them to stay awake after they are here. So we're glad you're here and hope you can stay awake tonight. Matthew chapter 28. On the table out in the foyer, I have some ministry cards. And uh, if you don't have one of these, I would encourage you to pick one up and take it home, put it up somewhere that you can see it every once in a while. And when you see it, I'd like for to ask you to pray for me. All right, so it's just a, a reminder to pray for me. Now, this is when I had brown hair, okay? I need to get rid of these cards so I can get an updated one so I can look like I really look, all right? So that goes back a few years, but uh, it still resembles me, okay? It still looks like me, and uh, as long as you don't throw darts at it, we'll be all right, all right? But uh, do use it as a prayer reminder to pray for me. I pray that the Lord would open more doors of opportunity for me to have more conferences. That would be a specific prayer request. Pray for safety and travels. That would be another prayer request. Uh, this past uh, February, when I was uh, down in Murfreesboro teaching at the Bible Institute, I drove home all the way home in rain. And it looks like when I leave here on Saturday, I'm going to drive all the way in rain once again. So I just appreciate prayer for uh, safety. It's not that I'm a crazy driver. It's everybody else that's crazy drivers. You know what I'm talking about? But uh, pray for safety. I'd appreciate that. And then just pray that I'll stay healthy wherever I go. All right? That's always uh, an important prayer request because if you get out on the road and you're traveling and you're supposed to be preaching and you're sick, it's no fun. And uh, so just pray for those three things, and I would appreciate that ever so much. If you know a pastor who has a church that might uh, benefit uh, from a conference like this, I would like to encourage you to recommend me to that pastor. You know me, but he does not. And it's very difficult to call a pastor that you don't know and have him be very interested in you coming to his church. But you can be used of the Lord to open some doors if you know some pastors that you think that their church might benefit from a conference like this. Uh, call him up and tell him. Send him one of my ministry cards. And uh, then you can even get a CD of one of the messages here and send it to him so he can hear for himself and uh, know what to expect before I would ever get there. So uh, that would be something else you can do for me. And then the last thing you can do for me is uh, write me a note. And uh, that would be very, very helpful to me. If you just write me a note, give it to me tomorrow night, or give it to Pastor Lang if you don't want to give it to me. You don't have to put your name on it if you don't want to, but you're, you're welcome to put your name on it. And I'd like to, I'd like to know uh, what you got out of the messages this week. How were the messages a help to you? All right, I'd like a little feedback about that. And just tell me how they were a help to you, and, uh, and be specific, all right? Just don't say, well, those were good messages. All right, that, tells not, that, that does not communicate to me. How was it specifically a help to you in your life, if you would please? That would be a help to me. And uh, tell me the truth. Uh, if they haven't been a help, just tell me the truth. I, I was glad you were here, but honestly, I got nothing out of the messages, okay? That's fine, all right? Tell me the truth. I'm not looking for flattery, all right? And uh, I just want a little input, a little insight into how were the messages helpful to you, if they were helpful to you, be specific about that, 
And uh, what didn't I cover that you wish I had? If there's something that I haven't covered that you wished I'd covered this week, uh, please note that if you would, please. That'll help me in further conferences, and, uh, and that will just give me a little input, a little feedback. I wouldn't say that at every church I, I go to, but I feel a little bit more liberty here at Berean since I've been here a number of times. You know, some of you folks are just, uh, you know, family, right? Well, he showed up here again, all right, you know, and uh, old hat. And so I look forward to seeing you every time I come. And, uh, and it's exciting this time to see a bunch of new folks as well. And uh, to get to know some of you new folks, that's, that's wonderful and that is great. All right, now enough of that because we need to get to, uh, to work here tonight. And we've got a lot to cover in this message. Oh, I wish he hadn't said that, all right? All right, so we can just all moan at the same time. Oh, all right. But we've got a lot to cover in this message tonight. We're thinking about the validity of the Christian faith here tonight. What, what sets the Christian faith apart from every other faith? Why is the Christian faith the superior faith that everyone on the face of the earth ought to embrace? And the answer revolves around the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've titled the message tonight, The Cry of Victory. The Cry of Victory, although we are thinking about the validity of the Christian faith. If you're physically able to do so, stand, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 28 in your Bibles. I want to begin reading in verse 1. You follow along in your Bibles. We're going to read down through verse 7, pray, and let you be seated. Notice what the Bible says. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. Father, we come before you tonight and we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to be here at Berean Baptist Church. And we thank you for Pastor Lang and Lord being a good godly pastor for these dear people. And we thank you for his people. We thank you for each and every one that's here tonight. Lord, we want to be a blessing. We want to be a help and Lord, the purpose of this conference really is to equip the people of God to be better prepared to be able to give an answer. And I pray that tonight, Lord, we would come to a clear understanding of why the Christian faith is the faith that ought to be embraced by every individual on the face of the earth. It's a valid faith. And why it's valid. And what we can say to people in this world to get them to consider the person of Jesus Christ. May you be honored and glorified here tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. The Christian faith, above all other faiths, is a faith that revolves around victory rather than defeat. When I take my Bible and begin to read Matthew's account here of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I see what I determine as the cry of victory in verse 6. I like what the angel said to the women that were coming to the tomb, and he says, He's not here! For he's risen, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. The cry of victory. Now, there are a number of significant things that occur in verses 1 through 5 
that I want to point out to you here tonight, sort of try to do it in a rapid uh, sense, if I could please, maybe not looking at all the verses, maybe just writing down some references that you can look out later on. But first of all, I want to point out to you from verse 1 that as we look in verse 1, there's an element of doubt and disbelief. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are making their way down to the sepulcher where Jesus' body had been laying. Notice verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. You say, well, Brother Chris, I don't see doubt and disbelief taking place there. Well, stop and think about the context of the setting. When Jesus was here, before he ever went to a cross, he began to discuss with his disciples, with his followers, if you would please, not just the apostles, but all of his followers, he began to discuss the fact that he would suffer, he would be crucified, he would be slain, but three days later he would rise again from the dead. Jesus was very clear, he was very explicit, he said it more than once. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would please, to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter Mark chapter 8, hold your place in Matthew, we'll come back there, but in Mark chapter 8, notice if you would please in verse 31. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, the Bible says here, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days he would do what? Rise again. Now the indication of the verse here is that he began to teach these, these things. So it's not just that he taught that this truth once, that he's going to suffer, he's going to die. Third day, he's going to rise again. The Lord Jesus Christ began to teach this on numerous occasions, if you would please. Uh, we're not going to turn to all these references uh, here tonight, but let me give you some references, write them down. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 40. Some scribes and Pharisees uh, were seeking a sign of the Lord Jesus Christ. What sign will you give us? And Jesus replied to those men saying, No sign shall be given uh, it to the nation of Israel, but the sign of the prophet of Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what was he saying? Just like Jonah got spit out of that fish's belly, the Son of Man is going to come out of the grave, is he not? He was speaking of the sign of his resurrection. In John chapter 2, after he had performed that first miracle at the wedding of Canaan of Galilee, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now the folks that heard Jesus make that statement didn't understand that Jesus was talking about his body, the temple of his body, and his resurrection, they thought he was talking about the Jewish temple. And so they responded back by saying, 40 and 6 years has this, this temple uh, been in the building. And how sayest thou you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, the truth of the matter is, if the temple were destroyed, Jesus could have raised it up in three minutes. Right? But that's not the point. The point is they didn't understand that he was talking about the temple of his body, but the Lord Jesus Christ went on to explain to them, I'm not talking about this physical building of this temple, I'm talking about my body. Did the Lord Jesus Christ 
make it clear to his followers that he was going to rise again from the dead? The answer is yes. Now, according to Luke's gospel, the women were coming to the sepulcher expecting, not expecting, to find an empty tomb. Look over, let's look at this verse. Luke chapter 24, if you would please. That's where we come into this idea of doubt and disbelief. In Luke chapter 24, notice if you would please, the Bible says this. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came in unto the sepulcher, bringing the, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. What did they prepare these spices for? To finish the burial of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Although Jesus had told them on numerous occasions, He's going to suffer, He's going to die, third day He's going to rise again from the dead, they don't have it. They're in disbelief in respect to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would please. They are in doubt about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They come to that tomb fully expecting that that body is going to be there and that they would finish the burial of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to Matthew chapter 28, the point I'm just simply seeking to bring out as we begin to look at this passage of Scripture is that there is an element of doubt and disbelief as these women make their way down to the tomb. Secondly, in verses 2 through 7, I want you to see an element not just of doubt and disbelief in verse 1, but in verses 2 through 7, I want you to see an element of God's grace, mercy, and kindness. His grace, His mercy, and His kindness. Kindness, first of all, in sending His angel to roll back the stone from the door. Notice verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. Now, I don't know if we're going to have instant replay up in heaven or not, but I would love to see an instant replay of this. Would you not? You know, here's the sepulcher. And uh, by the way, in case you don't know what a sepulcher is, somebody, I, I preached a message on the resurrection of Christ one time. I just kept talking about the sepulcher, sepulcher, sepulcher. And somebody came up to me after the service and said, uh, Sir, what is a sepulcher? It's the tomb. It's the grave that Jesus was buried in. He was buried in a cave. And to keep the animals from predating upon the body, they rolled a stone in front of it. Well, not only, not only to keep animals from predating upon the, the, the bodies that were buried in, in caves, but in this particular case, they rolled that stone and sealed it, making sure he couldn't get out. Right? So the sepulcher is the, is the tomb. It's, it's the grave. And I'd like to see that instrument replay. I'd like to see the angel of the Lord coming down from heaven, rolling that stone away, and then just sitting on top of that stone, waiting for those ladies. Wouldn't that be exciting? I don't know if we're going to have instant replay in heaven or not, but I'd like to see it. And so we see an exciting event taking place. And as that stone was rolled away by this angel, that is an act of grace and mercy and kindness on the part of God the Father. Now, this was not to let Jesus out. 
He was already out of that tomb. He didn't need anybody to open the door to let him out. Remember one time his disciples were sitting around in a room together, the door was locked, and Jesus came right through the door without even knocking. Remember that? He got out of that tomb on his own, did he not? He didn't need anybody to roll the stone away. He, the angel rolled the stone away for the ladies, for the benefit of the ladies, so that they could come in. And the angel invites them. In verse 6, he says, Now, I understand why you're here. He says, Fear ye not, in verse 5, For I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He's not here, for he's risen as he said. All right, come see the place where the Lord lay. So this angel has rolled this stone away in order for the ladies to be able to get inside that sepulcher, to get inside that cave, and look on that rock ledge where the body of the Lord Jesus Christ had been laid. Wow. Wow. What an act of grace. What an act of mercy. What a, an act of kindness on, ha, on, on God's behalf. Truth of the matter is, if you read Mark's Gospel of the account of the resurrection, the ladies are coming down to the sepulcher. They're having this discussion among themselves and they're asking themselves, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? God took care of it for them. Then there's the kindness of God in removing the presence of the soldiers. You think those Roman soldiers would allow them to get anywhere near that tomb? Absolutely not. But God took care of them, did He not? What did God do? Look here in Matthew chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. Well, let's start in verse 2. The Bible says, first of all, behold, there was a great earthquake. Has anybody ever been in an earthquake? It's very unsettling. Very unsettling. When I was a kid living over in southern Illinois, my dad and I were fishing one day on the, uh, uh, down at the banks of the Ohio River, one Saturday. That's what dad and I did almost every Saturday. We went fishing together. And so we were down on the banks of the Ohio River, and we're fishing together, and there was an earthquake that took place in Missouri. And that earthquake in Missouri affected southern Illinois, and it affected the Ohio River. All of a sudden, our tackle box begins to rattle. I didn't understand. I was just a little kid. I didn't understand what the rattling was at the time. It just startled me and scared me. Something's rattling. It's the stuff in the tackle box, but it's rattling. And all of a sudden, the water starts moving. I mean, it, it makes, it's making strange motions. And I'm thinking, some monster's going to come out of that river and get us, all right? Dad, let's get out of here. And, uh, it, you know, it was just an earthquake. An earthquake's very unsettling. If you're in an earthquake, oh boy, whole earth is shaking under your feet. You can't get away from it, and you just have to ride through it, don't you? And the Bible says here, it was a great earthquake. A great earthquake. I've only been in a minor one. I don't want to be in a great one. I do not want to be in a great one. Great earthquake. And the Bible goes on to say, For the angel Lord descended from heaven and came, rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning. He brightened that sky up, didn't he? His countenance was like lightning. And his raiment white as snow. 
And the Bible says in verse 4, And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and become as dead men. The, the keepers were the soldiers. They did shake and became as dead men. Now the truth of the matter is, if I had experienced an earthquake like they experienced, and I experienced uh, uh, an angel coming like a streak of lightning, his garment is white as snow, I think I'd have done the same thing they did. I'd be right out. Boom! I'd be right down on the ground. Anybody here ever fainted? It's a funny feeling. It is a funny feeling. I fainted one time. I was in a, I was in a college classroom. And back when I was in college, I sat in the front row. You see where I sit in church too, don't you? I sat in the front row. Mrs. Rhodes, this is for you, okay? <laughs> I sat in the front row every class. And as I'm sitting in the front row, I'm sitting right in front of the professor. And he's teaching. He's teaching a Bible class. And, uh, and our professor that we had for this class... He also, our college had uh, a flag football team. And they would play various other football teams in the community. You know, fire departments would have fire football team, uh, flag football teams, and they'd play these guys. And, and then after they played the game, they'd have a devotion with them and try to witness to them, try to win them to Christ. So uh, the professor was out the previous night with the football team, and he was actually practicing with them. And they broke his jaw. And his mouth was wired shut. He comes to class the next morning. I'm sitting in class. And he starts describing this event. And his mouth is not moving. You see, it's wired shut. And he's describing it to the T. And I'm sitting there getting woozy, woozy, woozy. He's right in front of me, and the spit's coming right at me. And finally, I just went. I mean, I just slid right out of the chair. I was down on the floor. I was gone. I heard kids, you know, students, fellow students, laughing. Ah, he fell asleep. No, I didn't fall asleep. I fainted right on the spot. Johnny on the spot. And then the professor gets down on his knees in front of me, starts talking to me, and starts <laughs> trying to bring me out of this thing. I look up, I see his face, and I went a second time. I was right out of there. I understand the soldiers fainting. They were scared to death, weren't they? And they fainted right on the spot, if you would please. But you understand that was an act of God's grace. And that was an act of God's kindness. And that was an act of God's mercy. Because you see, those ladies would never have gotten in close to that tomb if those soldiers had been on duty, if you would please. Then there's the kindness of not only taking care of those soldiers, but removing them from the very presence. The Bible tells us a little bit later on that some of those soldiers departed they went into town to tell the folks what had taken place. And we don't know what happened to the rest of them. But it did allow the ladies the opportunity to go inside and see the empty tomb, did it not? It's an act of God's grace, an act of God's kindness, an act of God's mercy. 
And then thirdly, we see the kindness of God in the cry of victory in verses 5 through 7. And first, the angel assures the women that they don't have to be afraid because he knows why they've come. He says, fear not, verse 5, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. And then he cries out the voice of victory in verse 6. He's not here, for he's what? Risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And then the angel says, I want you guys to be the bearer of the glad tidings. I want you to go back and tell Jesus' disciples in verse 7. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Lo, I have told you. This whole account in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 7, is smothered. I mean, literally smothered. I mean, it's like taking mashed potatoes and just smothering those things in gravy. It is smothered in God's grace and God's kindness and God's mercy. Now we turn our attention to the the cry of victory. He's not here, for he's risen, as he said. It is that cry of victory that shows us the superiority of the Christian faith over every other religious faith on the face of the earth. What makes the Christian faith different from everybody else? We have a risen Savior. They don't. They don't. You see, that cry of victory of Jesus coming out of the grave. First of all, there's victory over Satan. There's victory over Satan. Dear people of God, when we think about the devil, we often think of Satan as the enemy of man, and so he is. Correct? 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll not turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, he's our enemy. He's the one who opposes us, if you would please. Our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. It does not say that the devil is a lion. It says the devil is as a lion. It's using comparison language and it's saying, you know, the old devil, he's like a lion. And he's just walking around and he's seeking whoever he can devour, whoever he can get. He wants to prey upon the, the, the people of God. And Satan is an enemy of God's people. No question about it. Uh, verse 9 goes on in 1 Peter chapter 5 and tells us, Whom resist? We are to resist the devil steadfast in the faith. So we have an enemy. He wants to bring us down. He wants to devour us. And we are to resist him. Ephesians would say in verse 11 of chapter 6, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The wiles is the uh, deceitful tricks and, uh, and deception of the devil that wants to bring us down, if you would please. So we as God's people have an enemy, but the Lord Jesus Christ, because he arose from the dead, gives victory over Satan, if you would please. Now while Satan attacks us and desires our downfall and desires our destruction and he desires our demise, we would be best to look at Satan not only as the enemy of man, but he is the arch enemy of God. Satan hates God. And the truth of the matter is, the only reason he tries to get you and I is because he's trying to get God. 
So to try to get God, he tries to bring down God's children. But his primary attack is upon God. He hates God. He wants to overthrow God. He wants to be God. He wants to be worshipped as God. He thought he had the upper hand on God when Jesus was nailed to the cross. But the Bible tells us and assures us that while the serpent would bruise Jesus' heel, Jesus would crush his head. And it was through the resurrection that Jesus Christ crushed the head of Satan. The biblical record of Jesus' triumph over the devil is recorded for us in the book of Hebrews, and I do want you to look at this. Hebrews chapter 2. Now just stay with me because we're going somewhere with this. Pastor Lang's been telling me I've given you a whole lot. It's hard to process it all. But that's the way it is. We need to learn. We need to process. We need to get this. This is important. The biblical record of Jesus' triumph over the devil is recorded for us here in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. First of all, there it speaks of Jesus coming to earth and taking upon himself flesh and blood like we possess. His humanity. Incarnation. Verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. That's what we have. We're in flesh and blood, are we not? We're in humanity. Notice what it says. He, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the what? Same. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. He was the God-man, but don't think that that humanity that Jesus Christ indwelt was any different than the humanity that we have. It was flesh and blood just like you and I have flesh and blood. That was the only way that the Son of God could die upon a cross. As if He took upon Himself the form of a man. God can't die. But the flesh that He took upon Himself can. And He died in that flesh, did He not? So... We've got the biblical record here in Hebrews chapter 2 of how Jesus triumphed over the devil. He took upon himself flesh and blood. There it explains that he took upon himself flesh and blood so that he might die. Notice verse 9 in this passage. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. How was Jesus made lower than the angels? When he took upon himself the form of a man. You see, man is lower than the angelic beings. You have God, you have angelic beings, and then you have man. Jesus was made lower than the angels. He became a what? He became a man. And the Bible goes on to say that Jesus was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So verse 9 tells us that Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for every one of us. Every one of us here tonight and every individual on the face of the earth and every individual that has ever lived on the face of the earth, Jesus Christ tasted death for them. There it tells us that through His sin and sacrifice on the cross of Calvary, He not only provided the way to heaven for us, but He also destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Look in verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, He also Himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, through what? Death. He might destroy him that hath the power of death. That is the devil. Who's got the power of death in his hand? It's the devil. But what did Jesus do? 
He destroyed him. He destroyed the devil. He destroyed the devil. Listen, dear people of God. Satan may be a powerful foe, and he is a powerful foe. But he's defeated. He's a defeated foe. And Jesus' resurrection guarantees that. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 will not turn there, but it says the devil, uh, the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire. He's going to be cast in the lake of fire, and he's going to be tormented there day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Hebrews chapter 2 goes on to teach that when we by faith accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, by what? Faith. It's by grace that we're saved through what? Faith. Put your trust in the one who died for you. Place your faith in Christ and you'll have salvation. And when we by faith accept Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross to be our way to heaven, Hebrews chapter 2 says, he's delivered us from the fear of death. He's delivered us from the fear of what? Death. Notice what it says in verse 15. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Ever been afraid of dying in your life? I was for a long time. Mama would come to my room at night. She'd say, now Chris, say your prayers before you go to sleep. Okay, Mama. I'll say my prayers. So I'd say, now lay me down to sleep. Pray, Lord, my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray, Lord, my soul to take. That was the prayer my mama taught me to pray. So I'd pray it. Now lay me down to sleep. Pray, Lord, my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, and my little heart would go, If I die before I wake, I don't want to die before I wake. That was a wretched prayer she taught me to pray. Scared me to death. For years, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Is that assurance? Is that a big one question mark? That's a big question mark, isn't it? Now, a long time in my life, I wrestled with this idea, what's going to happen to me when I die? What's going to happen to me when I die? What's going to happen to me when I die? I was afraid of death. When I came to, by faith, accept the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross to be my way to heaven, that fear is gone. That fear is absolutely gone because He has delivered me from the fear of death. He's delivered me from the fear of death. The only person that can do that is the crucified, risen Savior. No other faith has a crucified, risen Savior. The validity of the Christian faith. It all centers around His resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ is has won the victory. He's won the victory over Satan. But not only has he won the victory over Satan, he's also won the victory over sin and death. Remember James chapter 1 and verse 15 says, Sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. We saw uh, Romans chapter 5 in verse 12 last night. Wherefore is by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin so that death passed upon all men for that all have sinned so we saw that last night death has passed upon us all now listen to me carefully the evolutionist the humanist the secularist the skeptic the atheist the agnostic has no explanation for how sin and death got into this world you just ask them Next time you have a conversation with those folks, one of those folks, just ask them a simple question. I want to ask you a question. 
You're railing against God and all these things. Where'd sin and death come from? They have no answer. We learned last night the answer, so now go back over it tonight. And I want to say something here tonight. Any faith that is worth accepting or believing has to have a viable answer and solution for death and dying. And if your faith does not have a viable answer and solution for death and dying, quite frankly, I'm not interested in it. I don't want it. It's a hopeless faith. It's a dead faith. It's a faith that just keeps you in fear and in bondage. Stop and think about it. The Christian faith is the only faith that has the answer for those things. As far as sin is concerned, the answer is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at it, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Does Jesus Christ, does Christianity, the Christian faith have an answer for sin? The answer is yes. Here's the answer. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look down in verse 3, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our what? Sins. According to the Scripture, does Christ have an answer for sin? Yes. I died for it. I died for it. He died to pay the wages of our sin. He died as our substitute, meaning he died in our place. He died to settle our account. I think I shared with you one of the times I was here uh, for one of the conferences, I had lunch over at a Cracker Barrel. Well, at a Cracker Barrel, the only Cracker Barrel here, right? And I just sat down and I had lunch. And, uh, and then I asked my waitress, I, she wasn't bringing my, my bill to me, so I said, could I have my bill? I'm ready to go. And she said, I'll be back in a minute. So she went to the back, and, and when she brought me uh, a bill, it was a piece of paper. And she says, someone has, the paper said, someone's paid for your lunch today. Have a, have a nice rest of your day. So I asked her. I said, ma'am, do you know who this was? She said, yes. Well, would you mind telling me who it was? Because I would like to thank them for their kindness. She said, no, they don't want you to know. They just want to be anonymous. So I gave her a tip. Left a tip on the table, and when I left the Cracker Barrel, I walked right past the cash register and didn't pay. <gasps> he stole that meal! He walked out without paying his bill! I didn't have to pay the bill. Somebody else paid for it. Who paid for our sin? Christian faith has an answer for that. No other, uh, no other religious faith has an answer for that. None of them. You study. You can study all you want to. They don't have an answer for sin. Christianity does. They don't have an answer for death. 
Jesus does. We just saw it in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. He by the grace of God tasted death for every man that through death he might destroy him that hath the power of the death. That is the devil. The devil is a defeated foe and so is death. They don't have an answer for dying. But Jesus does. Look over in John chapter 11 if you would please. John chapter 11. The gospel of John in John chapter 11. Jesus has an answer. For dying. Oh, it's such a beautiful, such a beautiful, such a beautiful passage of Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ here in John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said unto her, he's speaking to Martha, this is the, the, the story of where Lazarus had died. Remember, he got ill and he had died. And uh, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. Oh, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother had not died. And Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? I don't know about you, my friend, but I believe it. When Jesus saved me, he took me out of death and put me into life. Now follow me, because you've got to get this. When I die, I'm not dying. That's right. When I die, I'm not dying. Only thing dying about me is my body. But the moment I die, I'm in heaven. Because I have life. What Jesus provide for us? He didn't provide death. That's where we were. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But Ephesians 2.1 says, And you hath he quickened, made what? Alive. We're alive in Christ. We have life in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we die, we're not dying. Whoa. Isn't that nice? That is great. I'm not dying. Jesus said it. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. I live and I believe in him. I don't believe in him historically. I believe in him for my salvation to give me life. See, in the context of John's gospel, when John speaks about believing in him over and over and over, it's coming to place your trust in him for the salvation of your soul. Look over in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, look in verse 47. In John chapter 6 and verse 47, Jesus is about to make a verily, verily statement. And when he's about to make a verily, verily statement, it's one of those things that you just sort of need to sit up, pay attention to, and get it. He's about to make a statement that is very important. You see, the, 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 verily, the words verily, verily mean truthfully, truthfully. And so Jesus is saying, I'm about to tell you truth. I'm about to give you a truth that I want you to get. So in John chapter 6 and verse 47, Jesus says, truthfully, truthfully, sit up, listen, pay attention, and get it. I say unto you, he that believeth on me. In John chapter 6, he's talking about the being the bread of life, isn't he? You believe on Jesus to be your bread of life? To be your only hope for all of eternity? Are you trusting in Jesus to save you from sin's penalty 
and deliver you from hell? He that believeth on me, look what he says, hath everlasting, what? Life. That word hath is a present possession. We might say it like this. He that believeth on me has everlasting life. Do you understand the very moment you came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, at that very moment you became the possessor of everlasting life? So that when you die, you ain't dying. Because you have life. And what kind of life do you have? Not temporary life. Not life until you mess up again. Not life until you sin. You've got everlasting life. Because we have a risen Savior. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the answer for sin. Jesus is the answer for death. And Jesus is the answer for dying. Therefore, when someday we stare fate, uh, death in the face, we can say with the psalmist, Though I walk through the valley of the shallow death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Mm. Mm. Victory. Victory. It guarantees us what no other religious faith can guarantee us. Victory over sin and death. Now, I is going to ask you, how do you know that Jesus really rose from the dead? And if they ask a foolish question like that, and it is a foolish question, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-documented events on the face of the earth. You have an answer. The empty tomb is the answer. And not just the empty tomb, but the fact that his disciples... Saw him. Saw him. And were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Look over in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, notice what the Bible says. Let's look at several verses here in the book of Acts. I think it will be interesting. His disciples saw him on numerous occasions. And it wasn't just the disciples who saw him, but we're going to focus upon the disciples. The disciples saw him on numerous occasions. And in Acts chapter 1, in verse 1, the Bible says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles, by whom he had chosen, to whom? The apostles to whom he had chosen. To whom? Those apostles. Also, he showed himself alive after his passion, the word passion means death, by many infallible proofs. The word infallible means irrefutable. So Christ showed himself alive with irrefutable proofs. Many of them. And speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God, Look over, if you would, please, in chapter 3 of the book of Acts. Chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here Peter is speaking, and he's speaking to the Jewish people, and he says in verse 14, he says, But ye denied the Holy One. You denied Jesus, 
and the just, and desire to murder to be granted unto you. You killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. We saw him. We saw him with our very eyes. We touched him with our very hands. All right, Thomas. Reach hither thy finger. Reach hither thy hand. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. Did they not? And the risen Christ transformed these men's lives. Literally. Transformed their lives. What were they doing when the multitude came and took and apprehended the Lord Jesus Christ? They forsook Him and fled. Peter followed far off. And when they began to identify Peter as one of Jesus' followers, three times he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he not? After this, they went back to fishing. But then the risen Christ showed up, fed them breakfast. Brother, you have any meat out there? No, Lord. Fished all night, caught nothing. Come in the shore and there's fish that Jesus has for breakfast for them. It's starting to come together in their minds that what Jesus had foretold them was true. And he was risen from the dead. And they were convinced of it. So convinced of it that every one of those 11 apostles, Judas is dead and off the scene now, but of the 11 remaining apostles, every one of them, with the exception of one, died a martyr's death. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ were not real and were only a hoax, those men would not have died a martyr's death. You don't lay down your life and die for that which you know is fake or false. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And quickly, let me mention not only the victory over sin and death, but the victory over the grave. Acts chapter 2 and verse 24 is a very interesting verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Look what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, the Bible says, Whom God hath raised up, talking about Jesus, having loosed the pains of death. Having loosed the what? Don't we feel pain at death? Don't we? Someone dies, there's, there's pain associated with that, isn't there? But the Bible says Jesus has loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holding. You see, he conquered the grave. Interesting, interesting verse. It wasn't possible for Jesus to be held captive by the chains of death. Psalm 16 and verse 10, For thou wilt not, will not leave my soul in hell. Neither will I suffer thy holy one to see corruption. 
It wasn't possible for Jesus to be conquered and held by the grave. The angel back in Matthew chapter 28 had it right. He's not here for his reason, as he said. Go quickly. Tell his disciples. He's going before them. And ye shall see him. And they did. They did see him. It's not possible for those of us who are God's children to be seized, conquered, and held captive by the grave. Grave's not getting me. It's not getting you. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. The validity of the Christian faith is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What other faith can guarantee to you and me victory over Satan, over sin, over death, over dying, over the grave? Not one. Study them out for yourself. None of them have an answer. None of them. It's only the Christian faith. And that's what tells us that it is a valid faith. That is, is the faith that ought to be embraced by everyone on the face of the earth. And to be quite frank, as I said earlier, if your faith doesn't have an answer for sin and death and dying in the grave, I don't want it. I just flat don't want it. But Christ has the answer. And the Christian faith is the superior faith. And it has the answers to all of those elements that we face in life. And all those elements are key elements that we face in life. But Christ has the answer, the victory. So, have you trusted the suffering, crucified, risen Savior to save you from your sin? Do you have that victory? If not, trust Him. And if you have trusted Him, don't be shy about your faith. And don't be apologetic about your faith. And don't be ashamed of your faith. We have the faith that has the answer for what people in this world so desperately, so desperately need. So, tomorrow night, Pastor Lang wants to know, it's either going to be where do we go to find the truth or preparing for the battle? It'll be one of those two messages. And right now, I can't tell you which one it's going to be. But it's going to be one of those two messages tomorrow night. You just pray for me that the Lord will give me a clear leading on which one we're going to go and which direction we'll take. Preparing for the battle, oh, that's a good message. We need to be prepared for the battle. But where do we go to find the truth? That's a good message as well. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here with the folks tonight at Lighthouse Baptist Church. I pray that the things that we've been able to see have been a help uh, tonight uh, for them to realize and recognize, Lord, that we don't have to be ashamed of our faith.